God's clear proposition to Solomon was this. If my people humble themselves and pray. Now, I believe that God meant three things by that. First of all, God meant that his people are differentiated from other people. If my people, that's what he says. That's a differentiation between the people of God and the people who are not God's people. He says, my people. So that means the people who identify themselves as the people of God based on their relationship with God as Father. Those are God's people. Can I see the hands of those of you who identify as God's people? Amen. Amen. So that's the first thing that God meant. Secondly, God meant that there is one activity that best defines the people of God, the people who are his. Now that activity is not the worship. Worship is beautiful. We worship very beautifully this morning. That activity is not their discipleship. That is extremely important. God wants us to be people of the word, who study God's word and who live by it. It is not their giving to the church. That is significant as well. We just give and we trust that our finances will be handled appropriately to take care of the needs of the church and missionaries and so on. But that is not the defining activity of God's people. Nor is it their fellowship. There's something good when we come together as God's people in one place to celebrate and to uh, rub shoulders with one another. But that is not the defining activity of God's people at all. The activity that best defines the people of God is their continued, humble, and prayerful dependence upon God. In other words, the way you identify the people who belong to God is by their lifestyle of prayer. That is what God is saying. Now, E.M. Bounds says this, and I quote him, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, what the church needs is men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. Now, the third thing that God meant when he said that to Solomon is that praying to God is a very humbling thing, very humbling thing. Prayer is your dependency upon God for everything. Now, that doesn't fly in today's sophisticated society at all, does it? Pride keeps us from admitting our dependence upon God for the answers that we need for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for our neighborhoods, for our nation, for our world. Pride keeps us from depending on God. Prayer and pride don't go together at all. Prayer from a spirit of pride is boasting and God never listens to boastful prayers. God resists the proud, James tells us, but he gives grace to those who are humble. And so we can only pray by humbling ourselves before God and presenting ourselves in humility before God. I'm told that a visiting farmer from the country um, stopped at a city restaurant for lunch. And when he had been served his lunch, he bowed his head and gave God thanks for his food. 
but some teenagers who had been sitting just across from him um, looked at him and started mocking him, mocking him. Hey, pops, back where you're from, does everybody pray before they eat? Was their question. Now, their laughter suddenly ended when the farmer answered the question, no, the hogs don't. That stopped them from laughing for sure. Now, Jesus taught us how important it was to humble ourselves to pray. First, he taught us how not to pray, and then he taught us how to pray, and thirdly, he taught us what to expect when we do pray. First, let us look at how not to pray. He says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray I'm sorry, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. And so from this passage, we can see several ways in which God is telling us how not to pray. Don't pray disingenuously. That's how hypocrites pray, Jesus says. Don't pray to impress others. That's how hypocrites pray as well. How then should we pray? Jesus says this. But when you pray, go into your room. Another translation say, go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Now notice here that praying is assumed. Jesus assumes that we as his children are praying. He says, when you pray. That is an assumption that he makes. How should we pray? Pray in humility. You bow in reverence before God. You acknowledge that God is God and you are not. You humble yourself before God. Secondly, pray intimately. Prayer is you and your father having an intimate conversation and you're not concerned about who is listening in. You're just talking intimately with your father. Pray sincerely, thirdly. In other words, no pretense is necessary with your father because he already knows who you are and he knows what you want to ask him for anyway. So pray sincerely without pretending. And then, what can we expect when we pray in this way? Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says this, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, expect God to answer your prayer. Never mind that God's answers and his timing may be different from yours. Expect God to reward you. And he is going to reward you by answering. Again, maybe not in the way you expect, maybe not in the time frame that you expect, but he will reward you. Now, your prayer might have been just between you and God in secret, in private. But notice what Jesus says. But God will reward you openly, in other words, publicly, so that others will see what God does as a result of prayer. They will see it and they will know it. That's how God honors you when you pray in secret. Let's look, therefore, at the process of humbling ourselves in prayer before God. What process are we talking about? 
the Apostle Paul in his um, epistle teaches us the role of prayer in our lives as we come up against things that will derail our faith, and, and, and they will. We will experience things that will derail our faith personally, and we will come up against things that will seek to derail us as a church. And Paul is going to teach us some things about the role that, that uh, prayer plays in our lives. First, Paul is going to teach us about the frequency of prayer. Then he will teach us about the modality of prayer. And then he will teach us about the methodology of prayer. He says this, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, in other words, as you're praying, keep alert with all perseverance. So let's look at the frequency of prayer. Paul says, pray at all times, not just when we come together for prayer or in church, pray at all times. The modality of prayer, he says, pray in the Spirit. In other words, pray by the Spirit or allow the Spirit's energy to be at work in you as you pray. Allow the Spirit himself to pray through you and in you. And then the methodology of prayer, prayer, pray with all kinds of prayer and supplication. In other words, there's just not, there's not no one way to pray. Pray with all kinds of prayer. Short prayer, long prayer, medium length prayers, um, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of celebration, all kinds, Paul says. Pray by being alert. How many of you realize that sometimes even as you're praying, the devil is working on your mind and distracting you with what you have to do next? Pray by being alert. And then, here's another important one, persevere when you pray. Because you see, sometimes God's answers don't come right away. They only come after months of praying and praying and praying for the same thing. I was happy to hear Gary allude to what I shared with him about my brother, because you know that I, I've told you time and time again about this conflictual relationship that I've had with him. And um, I remember a couple of Sundays ago, I invited some people forward after we had prayed about impossible things that we want God to do, that was my impossible thing. And I was so humbled because without any effort of my own, God just changed things. God just changed things and we celebrated how God worked. This came after years of praying. And then Paul teaches us about the elements of our prayers. In other words, the things that should be in our prayers when we pray. The things we should be praying about. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, making supplication for all saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. These are some of the things that we should pray for. Pray for all the saints, Paul says but particularly the saints who belong to your church. Pray for those who are in grief and mourning. Pray for those who are sick and going through surgeries. Pray for everyone in your church. You may not know them by name, but set aside time regularly where you are praying for all the saints. Pray for your pastors. 
ask God that whenever your pastors preach, the words that, that we preach would be words that God himself gives them to preach. Words that are specifically designed for you in terms of where you are at in your own journey. Pray. Because as you pray, God directs our minds and our hearts to scriptures and to thoughts and ideas that line up with exactly with where you are at in your life. Pray that God would give your pastors boldness and power to preach the whole counsel of God. Now some pastors pick and choose where they want to preach from. Pray that we would preach the whole counsel of God, whether it offends you or not. Pray that we will preach so clearly that you will be able to grasp the very mysteries that God wants to reveal to you. And pray that unbelievers will be saved through our preaching. Believe me, it doesn't get done unless you pray. That is how important it is. Now, when asked, the secret of, of, when asked what the secret of revival was, a preacher said this, quote, Go home, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, and pray for everything inside that circle. That means praying for yourself. It is important. But you see, pride often keeps us from praying, and sometimes God has to humble us so that we learn to pray. Now, here's one example. He's uh, Manasseh. Manasseh was a king in Israel. And Manasseh had pridefully led God, he had defied God, and then he had led God's people to do things that were detestable to God. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses um, 10 to 13, we find this account of how God had to humble Manasseh. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the, com the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord. In other words, he went to pray. When he was in distress, he went to pray. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, when we refuse to humble ourselves and pray, God will sometimes humble us. And the way he will do that is that he will allow some things into our lives. He will allow us to go through some experiences that would put us in distress. And when we are in distress, that is when we're going to cry out. I always tell myself this. I prefer to bend to God than for God to break me. I always prefer that, to bend to God rather than for God to break me. Here's our second point this morning, and these two upcoming points will be shorter than the first. The first one was particularly long, but these are definitely going to be shorter. What if we sought God's face? What if we sought God's face? God says, if my people who are called by my name would seek my face 
Now, I believe that every parent in here knows what it is to have their children come over or call only when they want to ask you for something. <laughs> come on, don't be so pious with me. You, you, I am not the only parent who experiences that, okay? I'm sure about that. Whenever that happens, you know that you are being used, okay? You're being used for what you can give rather than them just wanting to come and hang out and just not have any agenda, but to see how you're doing and to just kind of add value to your life that way. Now, if we were honest, we would admit that our praying has become more like children who come over for a visit or who call only when we need something from Pop. Our prayers have become more about seeking the hand of God rather than seeking the face of God. In other words, we are more interested in what, what God can give to us than we are about wanting to seek God's face. Now, what if we change that around this year? Really? What if we just seek after God for who he is? And then you see what we need will come anyway. Because God is a generous God. But if we prioritize by seeking his face, we will have God's hand even without asking him for his hand. That is how God is. So what if we, what if we change that around this year? Now in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 19, Moses instructed the people of God that there is no time better than the present to prioritize seeking the face of God. This is what he says. He says, now, in other words, at this present time, right now, wherever you are, stop, whatever you're doing, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Not anything from him. Not anything for your children. Not any more stuff, but just seek the Lord your God. And there's no time better than present to start prioritizing that. And then the Apostle Paul, he teaches us that we, have, we now have a new status in Christ. Now that we, those of us who are children of God, we have a new status. And he says that that new status as the people of God demands that we develop a new mindset. It's a new year, so we're talking about a new mindset in terms of prayer. And this new mindset, Paul will tell us, is seeking after Christ himself. Not anything, but Christ himself. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, which is a reality because we're children of God, in other words, we might say, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on those things that are above, not on things on the earth. So we are being called to develop a new mindset. That new mindset is seeking after God himself. So what if we sought God's face? This is our second point. Here's our third and final point. What if we really turned to God? What if we really turned to God? Now we mentioned earlier that turning from a path that we have always been on to one that we have never traveled 
has a way of presenting us with a new opportunity to experience growth and change. I want us to pay attention to these two types of turning that God will mention to us in this passage from Ezekiel that I will, that I will now read. One type of turning, God says, involves righteous people, people who are righteous, God's people, people like you and like me, who turn away from God's righteousness. That's the one turning that God speaks about. And the other turning involves wicked people turning to God's righteousness. So in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, we find these two types of turning that God speaks about. He says, when the righteous, that would be you and me, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live. So two types of turning. But the turning that God delights in is turning away from whatever offends him and turning to him with all of our hearts. That turning brings about abundant life, life to the full. Here is something that really grieves my heart, and maybe yours as well. There are so many people, even people in our church, the church that you and I attend, who are turning away from God and turning back to the things that they left. There are people who are doing that. And the Bible says that people who turn from their righteousness, they will die for it. Now, God is not talking about physical death here. All of us will die physically one day. Second Samuel 14 and verse 14 make that clear, makes that clear. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. That is something that we all will experience. But that's not what God is talking about in this passage. God is talking about another kind of death. The kind that you experience even while you are still living. This death is separation from God, where you no longer feel anything from God or for God. That's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous to be in a place where you're not feeling God, you're not feeling anything for God, you're not hearing anything from God. You, know, you no longer have any desire whatsoever to be in God's presence or with God's people or in God's church. That is a dangerous place to be. But in turning to God, he turns his face to us. And only when we turn to God and he turns his face to us will we be able to avoid death and attain to the life that he offers us, life to the full. Here is God's promise to us. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, the ball now goes into God's court. We now God will do. And these are the things that he says he will do. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin. And I will heal your land. Three promises that we must not take lightly at all. God will fulfill his word. If we keep our end of the bargain, so to speak, 
Nothing other than the prayers of God's people will accomplish these three things in our church. Do you believe me? <laughs> or am I speaking strange tales here? Nothing, believe me. This is God's word. It is our prayers, the prayers of the people of God that will allow God to hear us from heaven, which we want him to do, forgive our sins, which we need him to do, and heal our land, which we are desperate for him to do. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. God's promise to us is predicated upon a process. In other words, God has made some promises, but there is a process that we must go through in order for God to fulfill what he promised. Now, the new year is always one of resolutions. Whether you make them or not, you're going to hear the word resolution or New Year's resolutions happen, whether you believe in them or not. So I'm going to just borrow that and share three things with you this morning that I think, I should say think, that I want you to resolve to do. Here's the first one. Resolve to let God have your predetermined yes. I borrowed that from John. John Hunt sat in Sunday school class some years ago and heard him talk about God's predetermined, our predetermined yes. In other words, that we should make up in our minds even before we get to that point that whatever God asks us to do, we are going to say yes. So I want you to resolve to let God have your predetermined yes. Now maybe you have never said yes to God. Maybe whenever God has asked you to open your heart to him, he has knocked on, your, on the door of your heart and he has asked you to open, your door, open the door of your heart so that he might come in. Maybe you've always said no to him. I want to challenge you this morning to say yes, to resolve to say yes. Say yes to God today. Whether you are here in person or you may be viewing us online, resolve to say yes to God. Not only to say yes to God now, but that from now on, whatever he asks you to do, you will say yes. I wonder if there's any person here this morning who wants to make that their resolve, their resolution for this year, to give God your predetermined yes. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to resolve that the pursuit of God will be your highest ambition. Let me say to you that your pursuit of God did not end when you gave your life to him. It was only beginning. It was the start of it. So I want to ask you never to make God your last resort. That's what some of us do. We make God our last resort. We rely on our own resourcefulness. We do our own thing. We solve our own situations. And when that can't work, then we turn to God and say, God, would you help me? Never make God your last resort. Always make God your first resort. Never pack your week with activities and then give God only what you have left over or what you find is convenient. Prioritize time for God each week. And may I also say to you, prioritize time to be in God's house on a Sunday morning. That is the second thing I'm going to ask you to resolve. The 
Pursue God with all of your passion which your soul, of which your soul is capable. Here's the third and final thing I'm going to ask you to resolve. Resolve that God will never have to say of you, what if? What if you had turned away from your sin? What if you had given your life to me completely? Theo, what if you had sought first God's kingdom and his righteousness? What if you had served me with all of your heart and soul? What if you had sought my face rather than my hand? What if my word had been a greater priority in your life? Never have God say to you at the end, what if? What if? Let us pray together. God, impress upon our hearts the key things that you want us to take away from this message. We ask you, God, that the Holy Spirit himself would bring to our minds and our hearts throughout the week the things we have heard. Lord, help us to resolve. To resolve to be a people, the people of God who pray, who persevere in prayer, who depend upon God, who seek your face first, before we seek your hand. God, we pray that you would help us to go through the process that you have outlined here before us this morning. And God, we know, we are confident, because you never lie. If we go through the process, we will receive the promise. You will hear us from heaven. You will forgive our sin. You will heal our land, whether our land is our family, our marriage, our church, our community, our nation, you will heal our land. And so, God, we hold you to your word even as we submit to the process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.